Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 87, and today we are going to bring to you part two of the Nutrition and Athletic Performance uh, podcast series, we're going to call this. There's three episodes in total with Dr. Travis Thomas. Hi, Travis. How are you doing? Uh, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So... Um, this is kind of new. Um, the last podcast, episode 86, was with you. Um, and in that, we discussed the new um, position stand, the joint position stand between American College of Sports Medicine, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and the Dietitians um, of Canada, um, of which you were one of the authors. And in episode one, we had a, a chat we shall call it, um, to introduce the position stand, what it was all about, why it was done. In particular, we discussed this idea of um, the evidence-based analysis, which was used um, to synthesize the relevant performance nutrition research that, that went into this paper. And I feel that that's a very important topic we'll get back into shortly. Um, we briefly introduced some of the new perspectives in sports nutrition, um, like uh, personalized nutrition plans, uh, metabolic flexibility and efficiency, energy availability, body composition, performance training, uh, pragmatic uh, aspects, the really cool concept of brain sensing and nutrition, um, and a variety of other bits. So obviously folks should go back and listen to that because it does precede what we're going to discuss today. The purpose of today's podcast, folks, is we are going to cover themes one and two, uh, theme one being athlete preparation, as in nutritional um, uh, a nutri nutritional focus on athlete preparation, and uh, theme two, performance nutrition. Um, so I don't think, Travis, we need to introduce you because everyone will have listened to the previous podcast. And if you haven't, press pause now. Go back to listen to 86 <laughs> because it's important you guys listen to this. So, Travis, great to have you back. Thank you very much. Um, you're in the UK. I'm in the UK, as we discussed before. But your UK is the University of Kentucky. Um, and I am a typical UK. I'm staring out the window. It's grey clouds and it's raining. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> so there you go. That's everything in context. So okay. um, let, let's just kick off with... Um, bit of a, a recap by yourself also as to the whole point in a position stand and how that is differentiated from other types of sports nutrition orientated papers that folks might be reading, um, um, you know, uh, in the journals and, and online and so on. Yeah, the, the point of a position stand is to um, have a very uh, calculated um, and, and careful review of the literature, um, all the most recent and relative, the strongest literature. Um, in the past several years, and I say several years, we, we looked at about the, the past six years, the last position paper being published in 2009. And our goal with this paper is to cover the emerging trends in sports nutrition while also looking at, um, uh, again, the best literature available to address basically every significant and important um, concept as it relates to athlete preparation, um, as you call it, I, I think of it as, as training, um, the foundations of training, um, and then also the specifics of, uh, of preparation as it relates to pre, during, 
and and post exercise how to what does the current literature say um, and and we try to to capture all of that into this position stand yeah and also um, I think a few definitions should be made throughout this discussion because when we use the word athlete that brings to mind um, very different things for different people perhaps yes. you could describe what we mean by an athlete yeah we're, we're when we when we think about athlete in this paper we're, we're talking about competitive athletes so um, collegiate athletes all the way up to the professional um, athlete not so much the recreational athlete but I also do believe even though the paper is not meant for the recreational athlete it's um, there's there's many concepts that can be used to support and help um, those athletes as well. Of course, and there I mean there are some serious recreational athletes. <laughs> I think I think the crossover there can be quite confusing, can't yes. it? Because on the one hand, you might talk about um, you know soccer players who you know they 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 train, they play a lot, especially in the uh, British Premier League, they can play multiple matches um, per week. Um, but but then uh, you know I'm thinking about recreational triathletes, for example, Ironman triathletes yeah. who are training three times a day. Um, just because they're recreational does not mean, as you say, that this position stand is not relevant to them. So as we talked about in the previous episode, this idea of information being tools in a toolbox, you you, you shouldn't you shouldn't sure. allow certain definitions to overly guide you. Yeah, but that, that, it's certainly it's a difficult definition, but I think readers should definitely keep that in mind. Um, and, you know, with the recreational athlete, um, as, you, as you mentioned, there's, there's certainly uh, members of that community that have very high training loads and demands, and I think certainly this paper um, directly applies to them as well. Yeah. So the, when we delve into theme one, which is, you know, preparing athletes, and, and, and by that, um, what we're talking about is, you know, a population of, of people who, 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 who typically but don't always have different phases in a, in a year or a season. We've discussed, uh, I've discussed periodization in detail with uh, Drs. Anthony Turner and uh, Dr. Gregory Haff in, a, in previous separate episodes. So we, I think they're well familiar with that. Most people know what we mean by this stuff. But... Um, Preparing an athlete is not the same thing as, uh, nutritionally speaking, as uh, performance nutrition, which is why, of course, you've got these different, these different themes. Um, and right at the beginning of this section, you're talking about the importance of energy intake. Um, and this certainly would be an area that's relevant to anyone, uh, you know, recreational or, or performance. But... You know, one problem we often find with sports nutrition is people, they get the, the hierarchy the wrong way around where, you know, they're all about the supplements um, and about the last thing they're considering is energy balance. And there's a huge amount of complexity to that. But, but perhaps you could explain to us why an appropriate energy intake, uh, and that word appropriate I think is important, um, mm -hmm. is, is such a critical thing to get right, right from the start. Well, I, I think it's just a, an emerging area that we're learning more and more about, that the energy intake uh, that we um, structure or, or pursue that is adequate um, is it, not just about supporting performance, but it's also about supporting um, your overall health and, and body function. Um, and as we learn more and more about energy availability and the relative energy um, deficit in sport, 
Um, we know that many body functions are negatively affected by a poor energy availability, and that we can't not uh, we cannot easily determine that we have low energy availability by body weight changes. Mm. Those things don't necessarily work together because um, poor energy availability may readjust the metabolic rate, so body weight may not uh, may not change. So, um, so getting energy intake right and understanding it, um, that's a key component. It's a, it's a reason why we discussed that first in theme one because this is the foundational um, part of the athlete's diet. Uh, we're, we're thinking about day-to-day, week-to-week. Not so much uh, what do we do pre-event or pre-competition. This is the daily um, structure of the diet and everything that you need to know um, in order to support the best overall diet. And we start that off um, um, delving right into the energy needs. Mm. And this is something that I have explored with all sorts of people. Um, uh, we, I, for example, I had Dr. James Betts. I've had uh, Dr. Javier Gonzalez and Dr. Dylan Thompson, all in separate podcasts. But they're from the University of Bath. But they're, they're sort of a, a stronghold of research in in metabolism, um, energy expenditure, that sort of thing. And, and the thing that, that really struck me about those conversations and, and from the research that they've been conducting is just how much the goalposts move around. Um, and um, energy uh, requirements, energy intake, you know, the whole sort of calories in, calories out equation is nowhere near as static as we were once led to believe. There's really quite incredible sort of shifts and adaptations by the body throughout the day um, that constantly changes um, uh, according to all sorts of things. Uh, so you could, you, you know, we can be fairly certain about how much um, food um, uh, a nutrient contains, but of course we're, we're, we know that, you know, food intake uh, diaries um, are notoriously, can be notoriously uh, uh-huh. inaccurate. But also energy expenditure is a damn thing, damn difficult thing to measure as well. So based on what you guys had determined, I mean, what are your thoughts about um, about that with regards to the complexity of it and how us as practitioners, you know, are are supposed to actually determine energy requirements, um, energy balance and that sort of thing? Well, I, I kind of say we, we do the best we can yeah. and just to be aware of the limitations that are out there. Um, just calculating energy availability, for um, example, is, is very difficult and there's, there's many limitations associated with that. But we, we certainly outline the, the best methods for um, uh, trying to measure um, energy intake, such as using the, uh, a 24-hour recall method um, with um, the multiple pass um, uh, methodology. Um, but also, um, we also outline some of the energy um, expenditure estimates that we that someone can pursue, and and we, we just try to outline all of the different um, uh, limitations that practitioners should be aware of. And what do you feel from a from an applied you know from from your own experience and from your research where the biggest limiting factors are? What what are the areas that are likely to have the biggest sort of screwball effect if you like on on what we're we're you know realistically going to actually implement in, in a real world scenario what was the biggest problem areas you think uh, that, that's probably that's kind of a difficult mm. question to answer i think since it's, a, it's such a moving target mm. um as you already mentioned and then um the weaknesses associated with the, the methodology 
I think oftentimes practitioners will delve into trying to understand and then make the mistake of making those static measures sort of the end-all be-all um, instead of realizing that this is a, a constantly moving target and the athlete is changing but also the, um, the methods should also be self-critiqued by the practitioner to make sure that they're always trying to pursue and strive um, toward having the most accurate and valid measures possible. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and the reason why, I mean, I have talked about this quite a few times, so it's not, it's not new to me, but the reason why I like to raise it a lot is because I'm often uh, reading or listening uh, to, you know, to, to younger, less experienced practitioners, and they, they do assume that these things are fairly static. Um, and they can, you know, they, they can be quite shocked when their interventions don't necessarily work. Um, but actually it's that, it's, it's, it's having too much faith in the numbers without mm. necessarily considering, you know, all these things that we've, we've discussed. Um, so, you know, moving then um, into an area that I, I find particularly interesting is where we're starting to shift away from, you know, working out, say, percentages and, uh, and so on. And we're now talking in more relative terms, i.e. grams per kilogram um, for things like protein and carbohydrate and so on. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts about um, that move um, in the literature and from what you guys found? Well, I think it's a, um, a, a, a much better method. Um, and w once you understand the, the energy needs, and it's still as long as you start with that in your analysis and assessment and your planning, um, I think the gram per kilogram approach is, is much more um, user-friendly uh, for the practitioner. And as the literature currently um, sets, it seems to be pretty um, helpful to get an individual started, practitioner started, and leading athletes on the, on the right way. Right. right. Yeah. So when, when, we, when we use the words energy requirements, energy balance, and energy availability um, in the context of of preparation. What, what are the key things we're focusing on there? Um, well, I, I think we're, we're focusing on, on making sure not only do we, we, we try to get some of the numbers right to, to help maintain weight if that's the goal, mm. um, but to also be aware of some of the other symptoms that may occur if an athlete does not meet energy needs overall. So some of the body system um, negative effects. Um, such as a, a compromised bone mineral density, just one example. Mm. Um, if you're picking up on an, a, a decreased resting metabolic rate, um, there's, there are several factors that you can look at that are outlined in the paper that may um, point you to an athlete that may not be meeting energy needs. Because, you know, I mean, I work mostly in, in uh, rugby in terms of professional, my professional arena, but... Um, you know, the pre we're right in the pre-season sort of realms, particularly for soccer. Uh, rugby will be starting shortly. Um, you know, the, 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 there's always a, a focus on trying to manipulate body composition. Um, but oftentimes people will, will come in a little too hard on this. You know, there, there are extremes to, to get rid of the of the body fat to induce an energy oh, deficit yeah. but there are but there are there are consequences to that which are often not considered um, so when what one area that has sort of grown is this sort of relative energy deficiency and 
um, particularly as it relates to females, but of course this is very specific to males as well, particularly in weight-sensitive sports. Um, it's, it's the consequences of inducing an energy deficit that I find particularly interesting because, again, sports nutrition can often be guilty of focusing only on the sports bit, the body composition bit, but not so much on the health bit. What, you know, I mean, what do you feel the consequences are during the preparation phase further in uh, to things like performance and so on, but, but where the seed is planted, if you like, at this point? It, you know, how serious should we be taking that in terms of getting it right and considering just beyond things like body composition? Yeah, uh, practitioners should always consider um, this um, when when working with athletes. Um, from the some of the initial um, signs and symptoms that could you know it could be a a report or an observation of decreased endurance, um, decreased training response, um, athlete impairment of judgment, decreased coordination, um, irritability. Um, th these are some of the early signs that y you could see. But besides some of the more chronic effects of it that are traditionally documented, such as men menstrual dysfunction, um, uh, bone health, um, negative effects on bone health, and um, there, there's also effects on endocrine function, um, growth and development, um, psychological um, impacts, and also GI. I mean, it's basically every body system can be affected by chronic low energy availability. And, and in terms of, say, micronutrient deficiencies and insufficiencies that are the consequence of um, you know um, an energy deficit a diet that has an energy deficit because it's, it's not just necessarily going to have an energy deficit it has a deficit of all sorts of things which might include mm -hmm. micronutrients which should be a consideration it, it's not it, it, from my understanding resolving those micronutrient deficiencies and insufficiencies particularly with things like you know calcium and uh, and so on. Um, it, it's not just a case of well, within you know, rectifying the diet a couple of days later, those those are all fixed. It can those tissue reserves, the the sort of the mechanisms for sort of repletion and storage in the body can have far-reaching effects, can't they? Could, perhaps you could give us a bit of an idea. Oh yeah, absolutely that. on yeah. that. Um, and we we um, outlined the three major nutrients, micronutrients of concern: vitamin D, calcium, and iron. Mm. Um, iron can take three to six months before you see um, a significant turnaround um, and where you're on the right path. Um, oftentimes, you also have to address um, energy expenditure and, or, or what the athlete is actually doing in, in order to, to help, um, depending on how severe that is. Um, with calcium, um, certainly um, there is a, a positive linear relationship with how many calories you consume and, and how much calcium you're consuming, but also the nutrient density of the diet. But you can't just fix that um, you know, with, with changing calcium or focusing on a calcium supplement. Because you also need that energy availability to, to, or the proper energy intake in order to support optimal bone health. So it's not just a, a function of improving vitamin D or, or calcium status with, with dietary supplements. You must fix the energy deficit as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I sort of alluded to earlier, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because it's important, I feel, um, that we shouldn't take an entirely blinkered approach to what the current goals of the athlete is. You have to think about what the longer-term consequences might be, um, you know, by 
your short-term intervention and and you know the 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 the, the problems could be greater than the benefits um, um, would you agree with that I totally agree with that yeah yeah so right okay so we mentioned body composition um, and we we briefly discussed this before I've certainly discussed uh, body composition in various contexts particularly for physique athletes in previous um, podcasts but the relevance of body composition to performance, it, it's not just a case of looking good in your swim shorts or bikini. There are some very significant benefits to having the right kind of body composition. Um, and, and, of course, you, you can be too lean as well, uh, I should point out. But, but, but could you just briefly discuss with us then um, why achieving optimal – well, what is optimal body composition, number one – and and then you know what what did you guys find um, was the best way to achieve that? Um, well, well, when I think about it, there's many different ways to approach this, but optimal body composition um, is basically not a, a one targeted percent body fat. For example, is is really defined more of a range of of body fat percentages or or fat mass. Um, that athletes are striving for, and in some cases, um, certain increases in, in fat-free mass. But uh, with just about every athlete, there's a certain range that we um, that athletes will strive for, and practitioners who are working with athletes will strive for. Um, but depending on the athlete type, um, body composition um, goals are different. And we know that um, body composition does not um, specifically um, predict performance outcomes, um, but there is still that strong relationship. Um, there's, a, there's a relationship that certain body compositions are related to um, performance outcomes. It's just not a, not a cause and effect with a specific body fat percentage. Um, so um, we, we do address um, the idea of trying to minimize um, rapid weight loss techniques and trying to um, avoid extreme weight loss measures um, and trying to keep an athlete within three to four um, percent um, um, points away from their body um, fat percentage goal um, so that that three to four percent window is something that's more easily attainable as an athlete is approaching um, competition time. You know, I find the whole body composition thing is is really interesting because what we traditionally see as an athlete's physique, you know, sort of, sort of, I guess what we would refer to as a more mesomorphic sort of look, um, muscular, lean, that sort of thing, is is not necessarily, as you mentioned, um, the ideal physique for that player. I'm thinking of. Um, some of my lighter rugby players who need a little bit of extra weight to add to the pack. Um, they've certainly, I've certainly worked with players who have performed better a percent or two higher body fat than than you know the the, the the ideal that the coach was after. It's been very interesting. But more importantly, is the efforts it takes to get some athletes to achieve a certain percentage body fat can have such a profound impact upon them and their lifestyle what it takes to get there can be such a a a distraction from the other things that maybe people are trying to achieve Mm -hmm. at this stage of the season could be a potentially more damaging factor um i mean you've already mentioned that there is no there is no optimal body composition but the, the the area that i find that drives me nuts personally is the obsession with a percentage as opposed to 
yeah. um, say, for example, a summer skin folds or, you know, the, the, the way people treat apples and oranges as, as the same piece of fruit, you know, Dexas, BIA, they're all the same percentage, but it's not the same thing, really, is it? That, I mean, there's some serious confusion going out there. How, I mean, you know, what do you feel um, is the best way of approaching that, that percentage, that number, that, that marker of body composition? Well, I, th- I think you, as practitioners, you look at the um, some of the norms that are um, do- documented that are in the literature for individual sports, and you really work within a range, mm. um, so that your your the athlete is not getting the information that they have to strive for this specific point or this specific number, um, because you know you you create that environment, um, you can cause some some significant concerns with um, dieting um, throughout the year, um, leading up to comp- competition, um, significant decreases in energy availability, um, but also some there's a risk for disordered eating practice. So um, so I, I think just constant education, um, practitioners understanding the limitations of different body composition techniques and making sure protocols are in place, um, reliability um, uh, measures are in place, and that the athlete is constantly um, is educated um, about um, the, the, the strengths and the weaknesses associated with body composition measurements. I think we owe that to the athlete and I think it will prevent a lot of problems down the road. Absolutely. Well you talk about problems down the road. I've had I've had plenty of my own bad experiences over the years where, you know, um I've gone in and done um uh, skinfold testing. I I happen to do Isaac, but for those those that are Isaac trained you'll know it's a fairly it's very comprehensive procedure, but when you've got 20 football players to measure in half a day, that's a damn difficult procedure to do. So you have to you have to find practical ways of doing these things. But um, the problem is, is um, they will have found they would have potentially had other methods of testing done. It's not uncommon for um, athletes in a team setting pre-season and and at the end, perhaps possibly even in the middle, um, to have a DEXA. Um, but then um, in the club, a member of staff will be doing skinfold testing. They then go home and stand on a pair of uh, scales, um, you know, uh, BIA scales, and, and they're all being told uh, um, body composition information, which then gets very confusing. And, of course, the way human nature is, they, they don't want to believe the source of information that's giving them the highest number. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it's yeah. a nightmare, and I've had that. This past week, my colleague and I, Scott Robinson and I, we were in a, in a football team uh, doing some pre-season testing, and, and uh, they were all obsessed about what percentage am I? And, of course, they've had a DEXA done. We've been doing skin folds, and, of course, they've had someone else do skin folds using a different technique. It, 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 for me, it's very much a case of, uh, there's information that I need to know and there's information that they need to know. Um, but it, for a yeah. practitioner, that can be a very difficult place to be. Yeah, and I, I wonder sometimes if we don't, if we sh- shouldn't just give absolute um, grams amount in, in fat, like a f- fat grams, fat kilograms, and just avoid percentages altogether. I agree. You know, like like we, when you go visit the doctor, the, 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 the medical doctor, the GP, as we say here, the general practitioner, they never give you test results. <laughs> you just you just go in and they say you're all right or it's too high or it needs to change. And I, I wonder if if we don't, you know, I've discussed 
the dangers of over-sciencing with various people in the past. But I do feel sometimes in sports science, sports nutrition, we, 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 we cause potentially ourselves more difficulties than not. Partly because people don't realise how much of these 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 formulas these 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 various testing methodologies are only variations on an estimate aren't they um but yeah actually i mean i've gone into great detail in past podcasts about body composition but perhaps you could just tell us about this 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 i guess if we could separate fact from estimate um which is important when we talk about these numbers yeah, well, I wanted to add to that. I think that if we, if, I think it's important to consider having a um, a devoted educational session um, at the onset of um, counseling, the intake session, the initial intake session with the athlete, and just um, having the athlete understand, if if nothing else, the the limitations associated with each uh, measure that they may um, encounter. Um, and that these are truly just estimates of, of, of body compartments and that there is a percent error associated with all of it and these, um, these percent errors can be compounded by um, what they do leading into uh, coming into the lab and, and also with um, different um, practitioners that are conducting the measurements and I, I think um, I think that's really something that um, needs to be of greater focus uh, moving forward and, and, and practitioners to understand the value of that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, we don't need to get into methods of body composition testing in any detail because they can read the position stand, they can refer to a the podcast I did on the same the, on the same subject. Um, yeah, because if you have that foundation in mm. place, think um, as the position paper lays out. I mean, what are some of the techniques that we should be focusing on to yeah. improve body composition? Yeah, and no, normally most of the time that means a reduction in fat mass, mm. and um, and I think that it sets the athlete up to know um, some of those behind the scenes expectations, um, the art of um, yeah. our, our practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also the limitations of the science, of course. I've always felt that for sports nutritionists and, and many other related professions, there should always be a class on managing expectations. <laughs> I would love to have had that class. That would have been so important. But we're not doing it. Right? No. <laughs> I know, I know. But hey, that's another podcast. We like to make our, uh, our work harder. That's oh, I know. Yeah. I know. So... Um, um, for all the evidence that you guys looked at, and there's a lot of it, um, particularly as it relates to the principles behind altering body composition in the context of athlete preparation, what what are the what are the key things that we know? Because there's so many different ideas. There's loads of myths. There's loads of there's loads of ways of doing things um, uh, um, which you can do, but maybe you shouldn't do because they're athletes, not just say physique athletes. Um, but what would be the key principles for altering body composition that you got? I, I think that's a, a great question. Um, so I think it starts off again going back to um, estimating energy needs and realizing that this is not not static, and we always have to um, be critical of what how we're doing things and and reassessing. Um, once we have an understanding of that, I think some of the key principles that should be um, shared with the athlete is that. 
um, in, in an effort to try to uh, minimize fat-free mass losses, I, I think we should control the amount of rate of weight loss that we're shooting for. And I think it's pretty clear um, that athletes are able to retain the most fat-free mass when they are doing some um, degree of resistance training, but also minimizing weight loss to less than um, 1% of body, um, body um, weight per week or body mass per week. Um, in addition to that, there's certainly um, data to support um, increasing protein intake over the course of the day and increasing the frequency of the meals. Um, those are probably the, the major components. And, and once you are moving toward these short-term goals and helping the athlete along their way, there's still good evidence to um, support reductions in um, total energy intake by around 250 or 500 um, kilocalories per day. Right. And, you know, I, I mean, obviously they can read the positions down because there's, I mean, there's a lot to this topic. Um, but essentially, um, the, you know, the literature can be quite confusing because depending on the context in which this stuff is approached, um, the reader is, you know, is in danger of misunderstanding the context. So you have to be very careful. You know, what is it you're actually trying to achieve? And like I mentioned, um, what are the consequences potentially? Because you do need to ask yourself, you know, um, yeah, I can do this, but should I do this? Mm -hmm. um, um, as we discussed earlier. So um, as we talk about um, or get into macronutrient requirements for sport, um, there are, of course, different um, demands on energy pathways, and also there are different training adaptations that we need to be thinking about. And there are differences um, between what our expectations from training are pre-season, uh, during season, and, and post-season, and so on. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in here that we could discuss, I guess. Um, but um, when we're talking about a day-to-day -day diet, there is an influence on things like energy pathways and there are adaptations not to not just to training um you know one's ability to lift one's you know our ability to get bigger faster stronger but when we're eating every day um and we're adapting our daily habits and behaviors you know with regards to nutrition and 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 so on we're also training our metabolism aren't we um and and perhaps you could give us an understanding of, of, of what I meant by that? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the way I approach that um, is thinking that, well, I think first of all, when, clearly, when, when it's important to, to train or compete at the highest intensity, we know that carbohydrate is the, the, the premium fuel that we should be focused on. And again, uh, the literature continues to support that, um, and it, it's laid out well in the carbohydrate table, that daily needs of carbohydrate are, um, are are laid out based on the needs of the athlete, the training load, and that has the biggest impact on overall total glycogen intake or, 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 or um, the glycogen component and, and, and muscle tissue. So, um, so when, when it's important to train hard, it's important to really focus on that area. Then the big question here becomes what happens when um, carbohydrate is not optimal or we have low carbohydrate availability. And in those scenarios, we are, are seeing in science that there is a, a change in, in metabolic pathways um, that are occurring that may be of interest. Um, but my take on that in the current literature right now is that we, we don't know enough about the positive benefits of that. 
And, uh, and I think a lot, some of the messages are, are being misunderstood now uh, about how important it is to alter that energy intake or, or reduce energy intake or more specifically reduce carbohydrate intake in order to change metabolism. And that may or may not be um, important to support athlete performance. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in your paper, you, you mentioned that an athlete's, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, an athlete's skeletal muscle has a remarkable plasticity to respond quickly to mechanical loading and nutrient availability, um, um, resulting in condition-specific metabolic and functional adaptations. I think that's a really important par- uh, 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 sentence. Um, and, and in the last episode, we briefly mentioned, and I've done podcasts uh, because I'm personally almost obsessed with the idea of metabolic efficiency and metabolic flexibility. But mm-hmm. uh, it's that flexibility thing. It, it's that ability to be well prepared, but also that ability to, um, well, it's like when, when Trent Stellingworth on, on the topic of carbohydrate periodization talks about um, you know, when you're operating in a low carb environment, that's like, you know, gears one, two, three, and four. But when you, when you want to switch rapidly into gears five, six, and seven, you know, uh, um, to win that race, to get to the, to the finish line, to do the breakaways, to overtake, that's when you need that incredibly fast reacting mechanism that takes training. Um, it's not something that just, you know, if you're constantly on a low carb keto diet, you're also training the body to not be flexible in, in that. Am I right in, in that sort of statement? Correct. I mean, yeah, you may be improving fat oxidation, but it, you're, you're missing the point in that um, at the highest intensity is you require adequate carbohydrate. And so we, 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 we really need our, our glycogen stores. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating topic. And um, as we talked earlier in the last episode, it's very exciting about you know the role that nutrition can now have in um, in these strategies to um, change things like signaling, you know, molecular signaling, and um, you know, influence adaptations. And, and I guess the first topic then to since we've kind of gotten into it would be, you know, the importance of carbohydrate because it's such a such a popular area. It, it sort of divides people in in a religious fashion, really. Um, but as you said. Um, and, and many have said, and I referred to Trent Stellingworth um, on this topic too, because I did a podcast with him, amongst others, and John Hawley and the likes. You know, and they're all saying carbohydrate is king. Um, perhaps you could um, help further the message, maybe, about why carbohydrate is so important. Well, I think an important um, part to bring up as well is that when, when you think about some of these low um, carbohydrate availability scenarios or situations over the course of the day, over the course of the week, um, I, I think what's really a, a concern is that um, practitioners and athletes need to be aware that there's probably already scenarios that are not really planned that, that are creating um, a low um, carbohydrate availability that may be promoting or allowing for some of these benefits to occur, these metabolic changes to occur, that may support um, metabolic flexibility. The concern is that if on top of that, you also are uh, interested in providing protocols on your own without working with your practitioner practitioner or going against your practitioner's advice, you're creating a scenario where you most likely will decrease your metabolic flexibility. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think we're going to learn a lot more, but it, it's just that it's that 
of all the topics, it's the one that literally divides people. Yeah, I mean, just just training yeah. in the morning uh, without breakfast is considered a low carbohydrate availability scenario. So there may be some benefit just from that. So, so there may not be any need to to restrict car- restrict carbohydrate later. Yeah, and and I talk about the need to define what we're talking about often because when we talk about low carbohydrate or high carbohydrate, low protein, high protein. It, these discussions are often made without any definitions by what we actually mean by that. So, so when when we're referring to low carb, what 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 does that actually mean? Low carb. Uh, well, I guess when I'm talking about, uh, I'm I'm more focused on low carbohydrate availability. So yeah. it's the, uh, how much a carbohydrate do you have in your system to support mm. the activity or support glycogen repletion? Yeah. Yeah, no, I and I wanted I wanted you to say that because <laughs> that's <laughs> yes. important because they they do it's just it's just low carb and that's it. Um, it, it. When you when you hear about practitioners and scientists talking about this stuff, um, they're often having a different conversation than than other people who are just talking about going low carb. Um, so um, let's move on to um, protein then because I think that. Protein is another area. I mean, people get obsessed about protein. They do. Uh, in many different ways. You hear about people talking about, you know, uh, proteins bad, you know, too much, too high a protein is bad for the kidneys, or, um, you know, uh, 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 there are different amounts of protein that we need to take in. And if, and if you don't get enough protein, you're not hitting the leucine threshold, and therefore your muscles are going to drop off. Um, <laughs> You, you know, the, the, the people get pretty excited about this stuff. Um, what, 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 what did you guys find um, as it relates to, to protein in athlete preparation? What, what was the main things that you guys found? Well, I, you know, the way I would summarize this concisely would be that most, uh, the protein needs that we first think about is how much do you actually need over the course of the day. Uh, we found that uh, most athletes will fall within 1.2 to 2.0 kilograms per day. Uh, recognizing that in athletes who are in a hypocaloric state, um, trying to create changes or decreases in body fat, um, they may require more, 2.3, 2.4, and, and that may be just enough um, to help maintain um, lean um, mass. We also recognize that um, from the literature that this daily amount should probably be spread out over the course of the day. Um, over multiple meals, and in most uh, for most athletes, that will typically um, equate to around um, 0.25 to 0.3 grams per kilogram per meal. Um, so, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Is like when we think about our different macronutrients in athletes, it seems like if, if we're going to count any any macronutrient, um, I, I think um, this is the one that we should probably focus on the most in making sure we get um, adequate protein um, spread out over the course of the day to help um, promote muscle protein synthesis and um, uh, optimal turnover. Yeah, and you know, I, I think one thing that excites me about protein beyond how it affects muscle. Everyone's talking about muscle. Yeah. Um, you know, I like I did a, a podcast with uh, Professor Craig Sell about um, bone health, and um, we discussed the, the the very important role that protein has to that. Um, we've talked about um, in another podcast, um, you know, the, the the role that protein had as a as something that is involved in in the satiation. Um, aspect of consuming food so you might eat a, you might need a certain quantity of protein 
um, you know, as, as we said, to hit that losing threshold, if you like, um, there, 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 there is a different level of protein intake that you might want to consume um, to make you feel satiated um, so that perhaps you're not eating as much of something else, perhaps. I mean, what, what, as far as athletes are concerned, um, and, and so that we're not just looking at protein as, as something that is involved in building or, or regenerating muscle mass, what, what are your feelings about the importance of protein? Uh, well, yeah, it extends well beyond um, muscle proteins. Um, uh, I think you, I guess before you leave the muscle realm, but there's also um, a muscle adaptation that occurs. Yeah. It's not so much the con contractile proteins, but also um, the proteins involved in oxidative metabolism. So you can have significant metabolic adaptation with protein timing and adequate protein intake in the more of the endurance athlete. Mm. Um, but protein's a significant component, as you mentioned, in bone health, um, immunity, uh, but also all the connective tissue as well. Um, you need adequate protein intake to support uh, regeneration and prevent injury. Um, so I, I think those are some of the key areas that um, we should be aware of. Yeah, no, very, very much so. And actually, just to backtrack briefly, since you mentioned immune health, um, I've discussed um, uh, uh, well immunological aspects of training and sports nutrition with Professor Michael Gleason. That was podcast episode 69. We talked about all sorts of things, but one point he raised about this obsession with low carb is that that has a potentially negative impact on immune function um and also um uh david pine professor david pine uh from the uh, australian institute of sport we were talking about the role of of carbohydrates and the impact that that can have on um, gut bacteria um and um oh, it's all it's all super fascinating how everything goes beyond just this compartmentalized view of what a food is like protein for muscle carbs for energy um that sort of thing it, it it's a bit dangerous isn't it how we separate um or or or, or, or sort of turn these things into sort of a, a one unit one purpose type type thing whereas food is so much more than that Absolutely, and I, that's a great point. And I, I think every practitioner should think about every strategy that they're considering uh, employing, and 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 ask themselves how will that affect or potentially affect the athlete's overall health. And think about it from a body system standpoint. And you can think about it from GI health. You can think about it from immunity. I think that's kind of a good uh, cross check. Mm. Um, to, to you know, maybe maybe you don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it, but just to to think about how um, wh what does that other literature say about you know GI health and how do we promote um, promote um, optimal uh, gut bacteria, for example. Um, so th those are things I think practitioners should should think about as well. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. A, a recent recurring theme is started with um, Dr. Sean Aaron, but it, it was this. This idea of, yeah, I can do that, but should I? So you need to think about that, should I do this? And there are some fairly broad-reaching consequences, short and long term, um, which is why education is so important. Um, so um, let's just quickly go back to the role of protein timing as a trigger for metabolic adaptation, because I think that that is, that is particularly relevant. Um, and um, there is a whole lot of literature out there that talks about this, but... Um, you know, in, in terms of, of real-world um, um, application and relevance to this, what, what, what did you guys find about um, protein and protein timing? Sorry. 
Well, I, I think, again, the, the idea is to, to space high-quality protein sources around the day. Mm. And I, I don't know how – I mean, yeah, we, we need to be somewhat concerned about leucine. But if you – I think to simplify it for the athlete, we, we want to talk about high-quality proteins mm. and making sure that's a component of, of multiple meals and that we're not having meals that are, um, that are devoid of protein. Um, and, and, and I think that's the, the timing aspect, the biggest story of this section. And if you want to get into the numbers, those numbers are there. And we think that's somewhere between 0.25 to 0.3 grams per kilogram. So for most athletes, that, that falls into around 15 to 25 grams of protein per meal. And I'm just making sure athletes are getting that um, with meals and snacks um, over the course of the day. And I, I think that's the story for the practitioner. Yeah, I again, you raise this, you use this word high quality protein. I think it's another thing that people get very obsessed with, I think over obsessed with. Uh, yeah. Again, um, a, a state of anxiety starts to um, descend upon people when they don't <laughs> think they've had the highest biological value with the highest amount of, you know, leucine, etc. Um, yeah. Perhaps, perhaps that's an over obsession. What, what do you think? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, you, you. I think this part could be boiled down into basic nutrition. Um, does the protein contain all the essential amino acids? You know, and you know, ask yourself that question. And uh, is the volume enough? And you're you're on your way. I don't I don't think it has to be a, a certain food type. Absolutely, and you know, again, when you talk about protein timing or nutrient timing, there's different ways of thinking about this and the relevance of certain things. But of course, if you've had, you know, um, a meal several hours earlier, let's say that contained uh, a decent quantity of um, high-quality protein, yeah. you know, there, there is a process of sort of digestion, absorption, and distribution that occurs. So, so that obsession of having the amino acids present. You know, for your workout, does not mean mean that you need to to neck a protein shake or take your your um, your now almost frowned upon BCAA supplements because it's already in the bloodstream because it's coming from the digestive system. Correct, and uh, not not to con not to confuse listeners here because we do go into detail about yeah. some of the protein uh, the protein types. Um, and the, the bulk of the literature still supports dairy as a, a wonderful vehicle for supporting um, adaptation um, muscular changes. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that other proteins won't be effective. And there's still um, much work to be done to, to look at other um, food components such as, for instance, concentrated vegetable protein. Yeah. Uh, there, there's several, uh, lots of papers and lots of um, studies that still need to be done. But I think it ultimately boils down to having high-quality sources that contain the essential amino acids. Mm. Well, of course, you know, if you, if, you, if you delve into the literature, you know, it becomes obvious that most of it has been done on dairy protein. So that, <laughs> you know, it becomes, uh, it becomes quite clear. Uh, you know, it's, I've, I've mentioned this so many times, but sports nutrition is such a new area in sports science. We've only just delved. I mean, they're probably going to come up with all kinds of stuff over the years and decades. Um, yeah. People should always bear in mind that, that this is still new knowledge. It's, you know, we've, we've barely scratched the surface with this stuff. Um, now, um, I was really pleased that you got into fat because you rarely actually read about fat as, yeah. as an important factor. They might talk about fat 
as it relates to calories and body composition. But 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 what did you guys find about um, the role of fat in this context? Well, um, we we didn't have a lot of room, but I, I felt pretty strongly about including this as a, a section and, and not just to focus on whether or not we should be having high fat diets and as a, as a relationship with low carbohydrate that but it's more of you know what what happens when athletes want to restrict calories and, and focus on fat um, as an area to to help meet body composition goals mm-hmm. and then what happens when athletes want to consume a very high fat diet and how that could potentially displace other other nutrients so a displacement on the high end um, and then maybe a reduction in, in other important nutrients that, um, such as um, fat-soluble vitamins when, when athletes are um, at the low end. So understanding how fat affects overall diet quality I think was the, the goal here. Yeah, and also you, you do mention, uh, just going back into my obsession for metabolic flexibility, <laughs> um, um, you know the, the the consequences of going on say low carb diets and then high fat diets um, may have an impact on on that thing we discussed um, called metabolic flexibility. Yeah, yeah. So alcohol, everyone's favorite topic, but again one that doesn't often get that discussed. There's been quite a lot of stuff in the literature right, lately about things like alcohol and its impact on testosterone and or adaptations to you know to training um but it is a it is a fact of life athletes do occasionally drink some will know us i'm thinking uh, certain certain types of sports like rugby is uh, not so much nowadays but historically used to have a terrible <laughs> terrible yeah. history with, with with boozing um but it is something i, I that came across occur. a lot of papers with rugby oh <laughs> no. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're willing participants, you see. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so what? You know, what? What? What did you guys find about alcohol? Because it is important that 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 you looked at that. I think. What well, What I wanted to do with this section um, is to to make sure that practitioners are aware that this is alcohol consumption is not just an issue of. Um, promoting dehydration and promoting an unsafe uh, unsafe behaviors okay it, it's much more than that um, ath- uh, alcohol consumption will affect hydration status for many hours um, even past hangover or any sorts of uh, um, negative effects that the athlete may feel um, so significantly compromise overall hydration st- status it can affect thermoregulation which is a significant concern in, in, in extreme cold environments it affects recovery in that it will um, compromise glycogen repletion unless an athlete is really good about their carbohydrate intake, which in my experience, um, many are not. Mm. Um, and then it will also decrease muscle protein synthesis. So um, normal recovery is certainly hampered um, by um, consuming alcohol frequently. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, it's an important topic, so I'm pleased you guys did that. So... Um, you also uh, talk about um, micronutrients, um, which, you know, we, we all know they're important, but of course, we're not necessarily thinking about the effect of training on micronutrient levels and therefore the need for them um, potentially increases. Um, and you mentioned uh, there were some micronutrients of key interest, um, iron vitamin D and uh, calcium and, and also antioxidants. We don't have time to 
go through all of these and anyway folks can listen to this but sort of briefly what, what are the what were the main sort of issues and concerns that, that that you discovered in 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 your research on on that area specifically well um I think that athletes who are at greatest risk of uh, micronutrient deficiencies or, or suboptimal status are those who restrict energy intake or rely on extreme uh, weight loss practices. Um, also the vegan athlete is, is somewhat of a concern as far as monitoring um, different micronutrients. We did identify um, calcium, iron, um, vitamin D. Um, as, as key micronutrients of interest and we also um, we also provided the, the latest literature and um, findings on antioxidant supplementation yeah. and that, um, being aware that um, taking high doses of, of antioxidants may actually reduce a, a athletic performance by um, by affecting negatively affecting um, adaptation yeah that actually uh, I, I done podcasts with people on all these topics and I, I did vitamin D and we discussed antioxidants with Professor Graham Close who did mm -hmm. some key research in that area and I, I, uh, I'd already had discussions with people like uh, Dr. Lee Hamilton, Dr. Keith Barr and so on where we're talking about signaling um, and um, sort of you know molecular biology in, in, in a sports science concept, context. Absolutely fascinating alone. And then I got into these discussions about um, how certain things can influence those adaptations and of course that's where nutrition gets really interesting. Um, for example, the whole carbohydrate, um, you know, uh, whether, to, whether to include carbs or not really does have some interesting impacts on, on those adaptations and those signaling processes. But like you said, antioxidants is one and as um, Graham Close was, was telling us is, is, is the fact that you know these antioxidants can actually dampen those signals, um, therefore um, actually reducing the stimulus for adaptation. Um, I found that fascinating because there are there are many familiar scenarios where training induces um, a little bit of aches and pains in people. DOMS, you know, the whole delayed onset muscle soreness thing. So people, right. you know, that there, there are. Nutritional strategies that you read about. There are supplement packages that includes um, antioxidants in those in those um, in those products. But actually, as you mentioned, that probably is um, maybe a bigger problem. But but we're not talking about just antioxidants. We're talking more about a quantity, aren't we? Correct. And um, the best advice that I think, if you look at the bulk of the literature, I think this is an opportunity to really focus on and promote the value of having a well-rounded or um, a well-chosen diet um, that includes uh, fruits and vegetables and whole grains um, as a vehicle for the antioxidants that an athlete will need. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, it's just occurring to me, of course, also that we have managed to stretch out theme one to one hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we've got two choices here, Travis. We can either bang on for another hour on theme two, or maybe we should just strip this out to a few more episodes. What, what, I'm, putting you, I'm putting you on the spot right here. What, what do you fancy doing? Should we, to give this a bit more, um, more attention, perhaps we should have the next episode as theme two how do you feel about that i think that would be fine and we can yeah. always see how it goes we know? can see how yeah. it goes i mean it's just amazing you know because yeah. folks should read this um 
positions down, obviously, but we've talked about a lot of things that aren't necessarily in the positions. Yeah, but in, in our defense, what I what I would say to yeah. you and the listeners is, I think um, this theme one is is in many ways the most important. It is. Some some may disagree with that, but it's the I look at it as the foundation. Yeah. Now, yeah. if, if, you, if you know, you're not a well-rounded practitioner unless you understand the foundation. It's not just about what you're doing within the event or how well you're focusing on your recovery. What are you doing for the daily diet? And are you understanding the effects of alcohol? Are you focusing on the right things to change? As an athlete prepares to change their body composition or prepare for um, their, their ramping up toward their um, competition phase. You know, and this is, this is it. This is the meat, theme one. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually, um, I'll just quickly skim through the rest of the paper, uh, which I didn't need to do because I've read it so many times now. Um, the uh, the next episode actually will 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 easily cover um, themes two, three, and four. I feel in one episode. So just for a few more minutes, then let, let's just go back to some some issues that have been in my head as it relates to this 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 sort of concept of of uh, performance um, nutrition or athlete preparation in particular is. Um, as Dr. Kevin Carroll, who's head of performance nutrition for the English Institute of Sport, he, he's got this, this this phrase he's famous for, which is unleashing the power of food. Um, and I really love that term. And there's that phrase, which is food first, um, which obviously implies, you know, approaching sports nutrition through diet rather than through supplementation. But um, what we're talking about is, as you've just mentioned, is building the foundations of an athlete. Um, and I referred earlier to that hierarchy of, of, um, of, of nutrition where often people get it the wrong way around. It's upside down where they focus more on, um, on uh, supplements. And then at the last thing, um, I'm thinking of a, um, of a hierarchy as presented by Professor Asker Eukendrup a while ago. But it, 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 it's, it's a really interesting concept about how nutrition plays a role in building that foundation, which, of course, is preparation, isn't it? But perhaps you could summarize, you know, what, would, what, we, what we mean by that whole building a foundation, um, particularly using nutrition. So and thinking about the foundation is, mm. is more about the day-to-day behaviors and, and practices um, that promote performance but also allow for optimal health, um, uh, regeneration, recovery. Um, these are things that are kind of behind the curtain, so to speak, um, that an athlete needs to pay attention to with her diet. And using um, whole foods and um, a well-chosen diet, all the different food groups, we're not talking about low-carb, we're not talking about subtracting food groups, but how do we look at foods and how do they fill, um, fill the, the needs to, to meet the aspects that are discussed in theme one? Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to hit you with a couple of terms now that I'm thinking about it, which is affectionately, that these terms are commonly used in, in um, what is affectionately termed bro science. So, okay. <laughs> um, so there's this there's this concept of clean eating, and you hear about it all the time. Oh, I'm I'm start, I'm eating clean. I hate uh, that word. Yeah, <laughs> I knew you would. What does it even mean? Exactly. Like, well, let's let's quickly discuss it because I think this is important when we talk about the foundations of the diet. The quality of one's diet is important, but what do we mean, even mean by quality, and what is the relevance of that quality? And 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 I guess when people talk about eating clean 
you know, perhaps we could orientate them to what maybe they should be thinking that means as opposed to maybe what other people are telling them it means. Yeah, so first of all, I would remove that word from the vocabulary of <laughs> everyone. It, it's, it's more about thinking about food and, and where the food comes from and um, trying, of course, you want to strive for minimally processed um, foods, um, uh, high quality foods, but you know this aspect of calling it clean or or being overly um, concerned about if if a food has any processing whatsoever and the the fact of the matter is many foods are processed to some extent even foods that we consider widely um, healthy uh, within the sports science sports nutrition community so um, you know that's that's the way I roughly define it or or think about it yeah yeah and I'm gonna hit you with just one last one um, which um, I suspect will cause you nightmares for years to come. So um, you'll have heard of the if it fits your macros statement. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but this is important because athletes, they come across this stuff. The, 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 the you know, availability of social media and what people read on Twitter and, you know, our athletes are reading this stuff and, and they're being influenced by it. And they, they are they are going to be influenced by these terms like eating clean and if it fits your macros. And, and we need, as practitioners, we need to have a response to this. Um, I've, I've had, especially in my early days, I've, I've, I've been asked stuff that I didn't know the answer to. And I could immediately see that the athlete was looking at me going, I, I, I'm, there's no point in me asking this guy because he doesn't know what he's talking about because he didn't even know what eating clean or if it fits your macros is about. So so um, if, if one of your athletes was was saying to you, Listen, um, you know, surely I can eat anything as long as it fits my macros. What, I mean, how? What would your response be to that, other than slapping them around the face? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would turn it back around at them and 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 understand their perception of that concept. Mm. What does it actually mean? And then um, kind of meet them halfway with the science that we're, we're familiar with, mm. and maybe going back to where we dis what we discussed earlier in the, um, in the session about um, a specific gram amounts as it relates to protein, for example. So it's not like if it doesn't fit your macros and you can't do it, it's more like how do you, um, how do you marry all these concepts together yeah. um, to, to build a well-chosen diet plan? Yeah, no, I, uh, my, my default way of dealing with this is kind of like uh you know in the same way uh like a two or three year old kid is constantly going to say why why um the, the the child genius sports nutritionist would say um define fits define macros <laughs> define clean define 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 because mm -hmm. that is the problem isn't it we, 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 yes. they do you know there is they're making assumptions and i think that 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 everyone speaks what they think is english but actually, they're speaking different languages when they're talking about these terms. And um, without the definitions, you know, keeping all this sort of accountable, I, I, it just becomes a nightmare. <laughs> in, in my world, it seems like we're, we're moving away. Certainly, I hear a lot about um, the first issue that you brought up. But the, 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 the problem with macros, I, I get more of the, uh, the issue or the interest in avoiding grains. Yeah. And, uh, and this is a, a significant concern of mine because of the value of, of whole grains in an athlete's diet. And, you know, not just as a vehicle for carbohydrates, but it's also a vehicle for fiber and, and antioxidants. Yeah. So, um, 
So I think that's a big concern that, that needs to be um, focused on as well. Well, I'm, I'm pleased you raised that because that is something that, um, that I certainly frequently come across. I used to have certain beliefs until I got better educated about mm-hmm. these things. And, you know, it is popular to go gluten free or, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the, the thing though is, and as you say, is athletes potentially are missing out on an entire food group. And to them, you know, it's just a carb or it's just a gluten, but it's so much more than that. So what are the consequences of not eating that? So that, that goes back to my my point that I made that practitioners should be thinking about always how how will um, certain advice or, or certain practices affect overall health and not just performance and I and I think there's certainly um, literature support the value of, of whole grains in the diet even if someone wants to restrict their gluten intake that doesn't mean that they're grain free yeah so um, so just some simple nutrition education and. Um, and um, you know, I think this takes some time when working with the athlete and helping them meet their goals. Um, and you know, you think about the ever-changing periodization of not only their training but their diet. So yeah, it's going to take time. But um, uh, the the impact of grains on 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 health, I think, is pretty clear in the literature. And I think if unless there's a, a clear clear evidence, clear clinical evidence. Um, that we should be making changes with an individual athlete and, and modifying their grain consumption. I don't think we should do it. Yeah, yeah. Now I, uh, I've gotten into this in the past, and um, I've got a few episodes coming up in the nearest future. I've got one on FODMAPs, um, and I'm, uh, I've got another one on uh, the whole gluten thing. Um, we briefly discussed it uh, when I talked about probiotics with Professor David Pine. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. Um, and well, to be fair, we, there's a lot we, we still don't know. Yeah. But, um, to, to, but there's, there's not enough evidence to avoid food groups. Yeah, in no, food group. I agree. But I think probably the bigger message here is... Uh, if you're dealing, if you're doing that, if you're removing those from an athlete's diet, and you're not trained, it's not within your scope of practice. Or you're not a dietitian, you're not a doctor. Uh, it's not within your scope of practice. You shouldn't be doing it. You should refer. Very important um, uh, to refer when it's not within your scope of practice. We, we we'll get into that in the next episode, though. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I've left you on a few topics that um, you're probably going to uh, sweat over now for a while, uh, um, or even perhaps more hilariously, some of the uh, some of the listeners will start tweeting uh, uh, you about those questions. Just oh, that would be great. <laughs> we'll see. That way, we'll see who's really been paying attention. <laughs> um, so, listen, I really appreciate your time uh once again and i look forward to um talking to you again uh, which i believe is in the next week or two i haven't got my calendar in front of me but it's gonna be very soon that we will get into the final part of this series um uh obviously folks um that listen to the first episode they'll know how to get a hold of you um via university of kentucky website um and uh, ResearchGate and twitter and so on which will all be on on the page for this and the previous podcast uh so until next time travis um i look forward to um i look forward to eating clean (laughs) thanks lauren (laughs) okay guys that brings us to the end of this part two of this three-part podcast series i think it's going to be three parts it remains to be seen um on nutrition for athletic performance with um uh myself of course uh dr travis thomas and um 
If you want to learn more about these podcasts, just go to guruperformance.com and click on either our uh, laboratory or our education section to uh, get to the podcast section. If you want to learn more about these sorts of things and even get um, uh, CPD or CEU uh, professional development uh, certifications, we have those as well as longer term uh, postgraduate education in sports nutrition program all run um, at the Guru Performance Institute. Just go to guruperformance.com. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon.